I've kind of developed a bit of a mentality of um, when things go wrong, do nothing <laughs> or, or like, you know, kind of like don't panic. Um, like I said, like the camels pick up a lot of on your energy. I absolutely love a crazy idea or when someone's doing something and they just disregard the norm. Uh, If you don't know, I work in the brewing industry, but I actually work uh, at a non-alcoholic craft brewery called Athletic Brewing. And so when you're doing something so out of the box like non-alcoholic beer all day long, everything else sounds a little more doable, but also you're kind of attracted to these just bizarre twists on reality and um or just on just kind of the norm and so with Sophie's story that that was totally the case when her message came across I was immediately excited because it involves something we've never talked about on this show which is camels Uh, Sophie is in the middle of walking across Australia with five feral camels that she has tamed and trained to walk with her and carry her stuff. And so if you didn't know this, Australia is practically filled with wild camels. I didn't realize this, but Sophie told us there's upwards of a million wild, or as they call them, feral camels just out in the Australian outback. Uh, Just to put that in perspective, there are around a million elk in North America. So if, if you've ever seen elk or gone anywhere where there's just tons and tons of elk, replace all those with camels and you're getting an idea of what the Australian outback looks like in certain places. So Sophie has an incredible story how she left her career, fell in love with camels and decided to to do this adventure. I'll let her tell her story, Uh, but I just want to prime the pump and tell you it's an incredible episode. So interesting. So cool. She's about halfway done, a little over halfway. She's taking a break for the Australian summer. It's super hot down there right now and she's going to pick it back up in March but she's joining us from this really cool little town down there that's like all these little underground tunnel homes called uh, Cooper Petty or Cooper Petty look that up too really bizarre but really cool Um, anyway Sophie was so fantastic to talk to super exciting uh, what she's doing and I'm very you know very, very impressed with what she's done so far and what she has left to do. And please follow her on Instagram, Sophie Matterson, uh, and also sophiematterson.com is her website. And you can find all that in the show notes too, because she, she posts incredible pictures and tells a great story on there as well. So enjoy this episode. There's still plenty of time in 2021 to plan that adventure that you've always been wanting to do. Um, if you can't do it this year, at least start putting the uh, the wheels in motion. It was this time last year that at Athletic Brewing we were talking about doing a coast to coast bike ride, where the first you know the idea first came up, and uh, we were on the road in August. So plenty of time to make something happen. Uh, use this uh, use this episode as some serious inspiration. All right, folks, enjoy and thank you, Sophie, for being on. And also, uh, my name's Mason Gravely. I'm the host. I always forget to say that. Enjoy the episode. 
All right, folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is, uh, gosh, this is this is an interesting one right here. We, you know, we get a lot of cyclists, a lot of hikers, and uh, you know, folks just doing random things. But this is this is out there for us. It's uh, I don't even know what you call it, Sophie, camel trekking or something. But anyway, Sophie, Sophie Matterson, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mason. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, so is this a thing walking with camels, or are you kind of <laughs> out on on your own on this one well i mean i guess it's a thing for some people it's it's not super common um but uh yeah i'm out on my own so it's uh, me and five camels and we're uh walking across australia at the moment <laughs> folks are gonna <laughs> as hear you my, do yeah as you do right? <laughs> folks are gonna hear my disbelief when i when i do the intro but i wanted to uh I wanted to go all the way back, if you don't mind. It, 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 you know, I'm, I'm judging here, but it sounds like you're from Australia. Um, yes, I am. Yeah. So, so where did you grow up, and, and what kind of kid were you? Were you real adventurous, or you, or, is this totally strange for you? Um, well, camels actually sort of came quite out of left field for me. Um, I grew up. I traveled a lot as a as a kid. Um, I was actually born in Hong Kong, and we moved around a lot when I was little. Um, but mainly, you know, through high school, grew up uh, through primary school and high school, grew up in Australia. I'm from Brisbane, I guess. I guess Brisbane is where I'd call home, um, Brisbane in Queensland. And uh, yeah, I was actually working in film and TV and looking to take, I don't know, I was kind of sort of wanting to take a little bit of a break and I wanted my job I guess to be a little bit more outdoors and I ended up stumbling upon people that were camel milking they were milking camels for the milk and it was a friend's auntie who had this camel dairy and so I bugged her I said oh can I go and meet the camels and then I just uh, fell in love with them and uh, so yeah so it started from from this bizarre path of milking camels but was I adventurous as a kid? Um, not, not like we never went camping or anything particularly actually when I was growing up. I guess, I guess I always had the travel bug. I did a lot of, lot of traveling when I was younger and both my parents are big travelers as well. <laughs> you, you mentioned a lot there. So you were in TV and had a career and, and you were unhappy with it. What, what kind of I don't know, gave you the confidence or was it easy to walk away from or was it really a, a taxing decision? No, well, to be honest, it, it just sort of started as I thought, um, I thought I'd just take a break from it and I thought I'd take, mm. maybe I'd do something totally different for six months and and that's all it would be and then I would go back to doing film and TV. And yes, yeah, so like I said, I, I stumbled across this uh, this camel dairy and I started milking camels kind of on the weekends um, and at, at one point I was doing half film and TV and half milking camels. Was that a paid job, the milking of the camels? Yeah, it was. It was just a bizarre combination of two jobs, I guess. <laughs> going to going to film shoots during the week and then, you know, milking the camels on the weekend. It was it was quite strange. But yeah, and then and then the camels just started taking over more and more and yeah, so it wasn't it wasn't planned or anything, and it yeah, like I said, I thought it might just be sort of a little six month break, and then I'd I'd go back to film and TV, and I I just kept going. Um, I you know I got too busy to do film and TV, and I worked at uh, milking camels full time, and then I I had a trip planned overseas, and so while I was overseas, I thought 
I'm going to go and see what other people are, are doing with camels overseas. Um, so I actually ended up on your side of the world. I ended up at a, a dairy in Michigan, of all places, milking camels with a family of Mennonites uh, over in Michigan, which was an incredibly interesting experience. A lovely family, lovely area, bizarre seeing camels, I guess, in the green pastures of Michigan in the US. And uh, so then I went down to Texas. I, I uh, met a guy who had camels down there. Uh, and then from there over to India and um, spent a bit of time with the nomads and their, and their camels over there. And then came back to Australia and got really, I was really interested in, in pursuing more camel trekking. Uh, so I worked for a company down in South Australia who took tourists out on nine-day treks um, out into an area called the Flinders Ranges and fell in love with that. Uh, and then moved to uh, Uluru, which is the the big, beautiful, sacred rock in the middle of Australia, and that's sort of where I started preparing for my trip. So it's been a it's been about four years that I've been hanging out with camels now. And like I said, yeah, it was only meant to be a little six month break from film and TV, and yeah, four years later, I was still chasing camels all around the world. You got to be careful. You got to be careful. Catch that camel fever, you know? That's <laughs> you're, right. You're you That's know you're right. in Michigan. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm nothing against folks in Michigan, but there's a there's a lot, I don't know, maybe more interesting parts of the country. Hopefully you were able to see more of the U.S. Um, there's some great places. Michigan, I'm, you know, it's great. It's fine. Uh, but especially doing what you're doing, I didn't realize there were camels there, but... Uh, no one does. Wow. No yeah. one does. I uh, yeah, I loved the beautiful red barns though. I was obsessed with mm, those. Yeah, <laughs> and the Mennonites are so interesting. Mennonites and, mm. and the Amish, very interesting culture. Very. I didn't realize they work with camels. I, maybe I'm just a dumb American, but I, I didn't realize you could get so much milk from camels. Yeah, yeah, less than a cow, um, but the milk is very popular in the sense that. Um, uh, a lot of people use it for gut and bowel disorders. Um, some people u- will use it actually um, with autism. Uh, so it has a bit of a sort of following in, yeah, in that market. And they're also making it into uh, skincare products now. So similar to how you would find goat's milk soap and that kind of thing. Very, very fascinating. You learn something <laughs> new every day. Well, let me ask you this. Um, <laughs> You talked about, you know, I, I think a lot of folks can relate wanting wanting a change, falling in love with something, a hobby, or not a not a hobby, a passion, like a new direction in life. Why mm. why camels for you? What what was it about them? Yeah, that I I had grown up riding horses, um, so I sort of I sort of knew large animals, and I was interested in large animals, and they they play a huge role in Australia's history over here. So. I, I found that part of it fascinating as well. We actually have um, a huge population of uh, what we call feral or wild camels in the outback here. So anyone, it's something from anywhere between a quarter of a million to over a million wild camels roaming around the outback. Wow. And um, and yeah, and a lot of and a lot of even even Australians don't realise that. Um, because most of our population is on the coastline and not that many people um, travel to the outback. So I'd started to learn about that and I thought that was fascinating in itself um, as they were brought over here for basically exploration of the outback and setting up um, um, developing Outback Australia. So so they had a very, very important role in our history over here. And then 
uh, once the cars started coming in and trucks started coming in, there was no more need for the camels. And so uh, the men that ran them, they they let them go. And from there, they they bred up in the wild. So now we actually have the only um, the only population of wild one hump camels in the world. In every other country, they're domesticated. So 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 that was interesting. Be, like being able to <clears throat> to work with a wild animal is incredibly special. Um, and, and they're just, they're, they're fascinating in the way that they're so well adapted to the desert. Um, all of their whole physiology and makeup is, is so perfectly adapted to the desert. And most of our, most of our country here, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to cross Australia, most of our country is made up of desert. Um, so they're the perfect, perfect vehicle for that perfect vehicle for exploration, I think. Maybe a little slow. <laughs> Maybe a little slow. So that's what makes me wonder why why camels versus what what we see and hear a lot on the show is cycling. Cycling across Australia yeah. is a big one, and y- you obviously had a passion for camels at this point. What led to the idea to to walk across Australia? Did that just seem like the ultimate goal? The ultimate I don't know, you know, challenge. Yeah, it's sort of. I guess there was. Um, it's it's really hard to sort of give one particular reason why, um, and probably a lot of your other guests on the show will be able to relate. It's you know you get so taken up by an idea, it happens. I don't know. Somehow the seed gets planted, and then you know you spend years of preparing, and then by the time you get to set off, you're like, why did I even decide on this? <laughs> you know, it seems like so long ago that I can't even I can't even remember where the idea came from. But, um, yeah, part, partly I guess it was I wanted to see more of Australia and I wanted to see um, the outback and visit some of our most remote regions. And, and like I said, the camel was just the perfect sort of vehicle for that. Um, I guess, I, I, yeah, for me I was never particularly a cyclist. Um, if you're going to do a walk, you have to tow a cart. And I thought, how good would this be? I've got animals to, uh, to, to cart my equipment. I don't have to carry anything. Um, but I mean, obviously there's a, there's a lot more work in having five animals with you as well. But, uh, I think part of it as well was, was the whole challenge of, so my five camels, they came from the wild. So sort of in some ways for me, the adventure all started when I, I took those camels from the wild and I and I trained them myself. So um, that was that was all sort of part of part of the challenge of it. I what guess. What does that entail? Training a camel because because I know horses are you know you, you can tame horses. There's a lot of there's probably fifty thousand wild horses in the U.S. I think. Yeah. And yeah, that I know that's a thing to to yeah break them. Yeah. Well, camels similar similar thing to horses. Yeah, you have to break them in and. Um, they're they're incredibly smart animals, very very smart. So they they learn things very quickly. Um, uh, it often revolves around you know a lot of repeti- or a lot of repetition. So um, you know saddling them up every day, unsaddling them every day, and um, in some ways the trip itself has all been part of the training of my camels because they. As we walk and as we cross Australia, they're they're seeing new things and new landscapes, or we might come across a new scare, you know, what seems like a scary thing for them. So, so slowly, it's just it just exposure to that, and um, and yeah. So, but uh, but yeah, it's, it was it was good fun training them, training to 
training to ride on them, training them to uh, sit down. You have to train them to what we call push, which means to sit down um, because camels are so tall, you have to sit them down in order to load all the gear on their backs um, and then stand them up with all of that gear. So that all had to be trained, you know, teaching them to have um, pack bags on their back and, and all of that. Why five camels? Why not one or or two or or, or ten? You know what 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 made you land on that mm. number? And, you know mm. what I'm saying? Um, to be honest, it's too many, okay. <laughs> probably. Or it's, it's it's more than what I need. I would I would say. Um, I don't know. In my head, originally, I sort of thought the trip. I'm I thought that I might have people maybe sort of jump on, jump off for sections and. Um, so I thought that uh, that having five would enable me to to have a few extra to carry extra pack bags. But in the end, it worked out well because all of my camels uh, are slightly younger, and um, so so and also because it's like it's like humans going into training. I guess for us, you know, to do a big um, a big walk or whatever, you need to be you know trained up and used to carrying pack bags and stuff. And mine weren't mine weren't used to carrying get to carrying any of that gear so so I was kind of able with five I was able to distribute it a little bit more so they weren't carrying a super huge load um whereas you know if I just had three they would have been loaded up a lot more a lot more heavily so so five camels you're out number mm-hmm. five to one <laughs> is there any I mean is it difficult to, to wrangle that many large animals at a time I, I would feel intimidated with one honestly with one horse or or, or something similar <laughs> like a camel five you, you've got a you've got a crew to maintain yeah what, absolutely. what does that look like what's the practicality of kind of the yeah. logistics of doing that it's definitely a crew um I think the main thing is is you sort of have to work out their personalities. Um, so just like any animal, they all have their own very unique personalities. So some will make great leaders, some will be better followers. Um, so, you know, as I was training them, I started to pick who was going to be my lead camel. Um, so in my little string of five, they all have their position in that string. So they're always in the same order. and um, And so that gives them... I guess a sense of security and um, yeah, so it's kind of you know you've got to you've got to take a little bit of time to to work that out, but yeah, for sure it's um, you know you put a lot of trust into your lead camel because um, he's the one basically towing towing the rest of the gang behind, so you you have to be able to have control over him or to be able to have a good you know working relationship with him, I guess. Um, because he sort of really controls the rest of the four behind him as well. So, but like I said, they're just so smart. So, you know, and this, it took me probably about a year to train them before we set off. And so you start to develop that relationship. He knows my lead camel is Jude and, uh, he knows, you know, lots of words. Like he knows, he knows steady, he knows stand. He, they pick up very much on your mood as well. So, you know, there'd be times where I don't feel very confident because it's the first time I've, you know, walked in this area or walked in this, you know, remote location, but, but you sort of have to, have to sort of fake it almost. You have to be a strong leader for them because they, they will pick up on your energy. And if uh, you're nervous, then it'll make them nervous as well. My goodness, so interesting. What did what did you look for 
in the camels when you when you were picking them out? Is there any sort of qualities you're looking for, or are most camels going to fare well with this type of thing? You can probably get most camels will probably will probably do it. Like I said, you know, not not every camel will make a leader. Um, so I, I was lucky that I found a. I think I was lucky that I found a really really great lead camel. Um, but otherwise, no, no, I mean, it's a, it's a bit of a gamble really, because when I took them from the wild, it was, you know, you, all you're looking, all you're looking at at that point is whether they're a nice, you know, whether they've got nice confirmation, I guess, whether they look like a strong camel and, you know, whether they look like they can carry a load. And then, um, you only really get to know what they're going to be like to train, you know, as you get further down the road then. So you're kind of just, you got to pick it, you know, pick the crew say this is this is our team we're gonna go make it happen we're gonna work it out we're gonna get frustrated that's right (laughs) yeah a hundred percent yeah they've they've like I said they very much have their own personalities I have a little camel Clayton and um a lot of people always ask you know one of the the major questions people ask is do camels spit um which they actually don't spit they they vomit so if camels are very unhappy even better <laughs> um they will puke up their guts <laughs> onto you and um i had a little camel clayton yeah it's taken a long time for us to get to under, to an understanding between one another um he has covered me in a fair bit of regurgitated um plant matter many a time which i tell you what does not smell good but he's a he's a very very hard little worker. He just is never probably going to be a cuddly camel. He just does not like affection, particularly. But an incredibly hard worker, and so it's just um, it's just working out. You know, whereas I have another camel, Charlie, who adores being patted and cuddled and loves kids, and so they're very very different. And you just got to respect them for for who they are. I think. Um, yeah, if you treat them well, they will treat you well. And I think that's probably one of the hard, being one of the hardest things of, of my trip is, is it is round the clock camel care. So, you know, they are your lifeline out there and um, you have to look after them so well because, because you know, they're doing all the work and um, they're, they're all you've got out there. So speaking of that, what do they need? Because, you know, I think we all know, or we, we at least it sounds like it has the potential to be folklore that camels don't need to drink that often. H- how true is that? And how often do they need water? And, and what other kinds of things do they need? Mm, yeah, well, the water one is, is really, really tricky. It's an, it's an equation that I've almost never been able to work out because it, it all depends on... Um, how hard they're working, what the temperature is, uh, what the feeds like. Camels get a lot of um, a lot of water from uh, their what they're eating. Um, so, so that was probably one of the biggest struggles I had as well. Is that um, actually when I when I crossed WA, uh, Western Australia, is that it was um, a lot of the area was in pretty pretty severe drought, which camels actually you know they do a lot better than a lot of other animals. Um, out there in a dry season but but still you you know they require a lot of feed and uh to keep them going and and also you know the drier it is the less moisture content they're getting from those plants and the more that they need to drink so so i was carrying 12 jerry cans on me and um, most of that was for 
the stretches in the desert where I would need to actually give my camels a drink. Having said that, I've heard of, you know, station owners have told me of um, of camels that have gone sort of six months without a drink of water just because they're they're eating amazing, you know, succulent succulent feed. So it's pretty incredible. Six months without a drop of drop of water. Six months. Mm. Unbelievable. Pretty nuts. Whereas you think a cow they have to drink, you know, every day, horses, you know, definitely, you know, I think I think you might be able to push them. I'm not hundred percent sure on this, but you know, two, maybe three days max. But but my camels, um, you know, often I did a stretch where I didn't give them a drink for two weeks. Wow. So, yeah, I, they, they start to get – it's a little bit depressing sometimes when you're out there, though, because they they get thirsty. Um, they can do it, but they, you know, they, they think that they need a drink of water. And so every time you have to fill up your water bottle, you're kind of doing that secretly, like they'll be off grazing and you've got to – secretly fill up your water bottle back at camp and hope that they don't hear the sound of the water or hope that they don't smell the water because otherwise they're they're right over there up in your face um so yeah you're always hiding hiding about trying to fill up water bottles and have a drink on your own i I, i'm just blown away by this whole experience you've you've got these (laughs) massive animals that have these super natural powers almost and you're you're walking across one of the largest continents in the world and, and you're just it, it's like something out of a sci-fi movie it's incredible <laughs> do, do, do they do they feel like your your protectors your um they're like walls around you do, does it does do they do they feel like that yeah absolutely actually um yeah they do i think it would be a really different experience without them um you know, like you said, there's a lot of people that cycle across Australia. And for me, I, I almost can't even imagine that because um, I think for me, you know, the camels really hold off a certain amount of loneliness. Uh, when you have them, you have another sort of, um, I don't know, another spirit out there. And uh, yeah, yeah. So you become very, yeah, you become very, very attached to them. And um, uh, one of my favorite things is to, is, you know, when I, sleep at night I sleep you know really only a couple of meters away from them uh partly because I you know I have to they're tethered to trees so just in case they get tangled up in the ropes I need to be able to hear or um if a if a wild camel comes into our camp I need to be able to deal with that situation but I love uh, my favorite thing is lying uh falling asleep with the sound of them chewing their cud I love that so what are you doing about that now do you have that playing in the background when you go to sleep not on the trip right now i I should have recorded that so i could uh, go to sound i don't think that's an option on most of the little machines (laughs) that's right no i don't think it's up there with the uh the rainfall or air conditioning (laughs) (laughs) white noise wow that's hilarious yeah that's uh you'll need that so I mean, there's just, there's just a million questions I want to ask, and I know it might sound basic, but we've just never talked to someone doing this. You're not on mm. paved roads for the most part. It's It looks like it's mostly dirt tracks, dirt roads through through the outback. Yeah, all dirt roads. So I don't think I crossed any paved road in the – I've traveled about – 2,300 kilometers, I think, roughly so far. So I actually was looking in this up because I suddenly thought you guys work in miles. 
I think that's one thousand about one thousand four hundred miles roughly. Am I right there? Uh um, kilometers actually. Let me look it up. Um we, we have so many folks from all over the world on this show that our listeners are used to it. Yeah, it looks like about yeah. fourteen hundred miles. Good there gracious. You go, yeah. So, you know, when when you overlay Australia and the US, it it's it's about the same distance or it's about the same yes. size. And so this is very similar for, for American listeners to literally walking coast to coast across America with a tenth of the population. Unbelievable. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's uh and especially the area that I've just crossed, Western Australia is is very, very remote. Um, I don't know what their population is, but it, it's tiny. I I was thinking today I the largest town I went through was, um, I think, about 800 residents. That's the largest township I went through. Otherwise, otherwise, I pretty much did not go through a single other town. Um, there was a stretch that I, when I went into uh, the Great Victoria Desert, which is Australia's largest desert and I think the seventh largest in the world, um, it's a stretch of 1,000, 1,300 kilometres, so say roughly 800 miles, I think that is, um, and all there is is one little roadhouse or, you know, like a fuel bowser um, in the middle that's sort of manned by two guys out there. Um, that's it. There's no one else out there. Um, it's a it's a four-wheel drive track that I was following, but actually, well, as well because of because of COVID, um, no one was a lot of the time that I was walking, no one was traveling. Um, that road that I that I went along in the Great Victoria Desert, it was actually shut. I was the only one. You have to get permits to go across that road because a lot of the land that you're traveling across is Aboriginal land, and um, no one else was able to get permits because of um, uh, because they weren't allowing people onto Aboriginal land because they didn't want to spread the uh, the disease. But because I was taking so long to get on there, um, you know, I would have gone through my own amount of quarantine, basically. I was sort of doing my own extreme form of social distancing. So I was the only one travelling down that road, which was actually an incredibly special experience. I sort of got to have that desert track to myself. I mean, I I know I keep saying it, but this is so unbelievable of an adventure, so incredible. <laughs> Something that we hear a lot because we we do we do have a lot of uh, Americans on the show who are exploring America, and yep. they are you know like myself, born and raised here. But when you see it from the seat of a bicycle or on your own two feet, going to these reaches of the country, your home country that you've never perceived even existed. Have you had that experience with Australia? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm actually, I think well, one of the, one of the reasons why I wanted to go into the great Victoria desert is I felt like I had not a single other person I knew from Australia even knew of where that desert was this huge, huge area of land wow. um, and no one even knew where it was in Australia. So so I guess that kind of, that really intrigued me and, and, and we're very, very lucky um, in Australia, I think, to have such huge areas of, you know, remote wilderness. Um, I mean, it's, it's really quite 
humbling to stand on the crest of a hill or on the crest of a sand dune and look out and you can see 360 degrees and there is not a single sign of human inhabitants um and and that happened you know you know it wasn't like I found one spot like that that happened many many a time on my trip um so you really feel like a tiny a tiny speck out there in in this wilderness um and I think you know and you'll probably I'm sure a lot of your listeners will will agree with me is that the nice thing about traveling you know rather than traveling in a car where you're sort of shielded whizzing through in this bubble is when you travel slowly by bike or, you know, walking or, or by camel like I did, which is probably even slower than your regular hike. We only travel at about 3K an hour. Um, <laughs> saunter. It's a saunter. Yeah, that's right. We saunter across the desert. Um, so we really, like, you really just get to take in the, the small changes um, and you get to be be a part of that environment. You're You're not shielded from um from anything you have to deal with with the weather the changes in weather the you know the sandstorms the dust storms the flies the beautiful crest uh, fresh crisp mornings and beautiful sunrises and sunsets out in the desert and and you get to really see the the detail in that that I just don't think you you pick up when you whiz through in a car absolutely not that that's a sensation that we hear described a lot and and one you can't really explain until you to go out and do it yourself mm. Mm. has it i mean just it's so much desert it, it's almost primarily desert what you're crossing does it get monotonous to you or are you enjoying kind of the consistency of it well i think that's the thing is that a lot of people that do drive um in these places will say oh it's all the same because because i don't think you you see those subtle changes whereas for me uh, yeah, I mean, there was a few areas where I sort of thought, oh, God, here we go, another another mulga forest, which is sort of like a similar type of, you know, scrubby tree out there. But um, but I, I, I felt like I really started to appreciate all the differences in vegetation. So, so no, I sort of didn't find it. I didn't find it boring or monotonous um, because it, actually there is so much variety out there um, and the landscape can change very very quickly um you know you can go from uh, well i mean even even when we were out in the desert there was huge areas where um where it had been burnt by a wildfire back in 2018 i think it was so huge areas of just sort of um very sort of desolate looking dunes um and then you you'd uh walk over another dune and then it would be totally different i mean a lot of people think about the desert as they think about the sahara they think about bare dunes that you're crossing Australian deserts are not like that at all they are actually incredibly vegetated um we have one of the oldest land masses in the world and so our dunes are quite stable because there's um there's been a lot of time for that vegetation to grow there's quite a lot of bird life a lot of reptile life in the desert uh so there's actually a huge amount of life out there uh, and then I got a, a big change in weather too, uh, and I had right at the end of my trip, I got uh, well coming into sort of at the edge of the desert. I we had a lot of rain, and so it was it was magical. It was something I'd always wanted to see, and I finally got to see it. Was was the desert come to life after rain? And literally the the day after rain, you see these these flowers called parakelia 
popping up through the sand and it's just like it's instantaneous the transformation and yeah it became there was sea you know a sea of wildflowers out there um birds started to migrate in uh it was really really special Mm. i can only imagine honestly just the the payoff of the rain and the life it 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 brought and and you were in tune with the landscape to to sense those subtle changes and Mm. that it takes that you know i i've i've gone places on on a trip that took a lot of effort to get there and it was so much more vivid so much more impactful and then i'll go back and visit you know with my wife and we'll drive there and it just it doesn't feel the same anymore you know because it wasn't Mm. very hard to get there and uh, absolutely it's so it's so bizarre like the places aren't as magical which is sad but it's also, yeah. you know, it's there. You're just not looking at it that way. Your your yeah. saturation of your eyes are turned down. The, vi- the, the you know, it's not as vibrant. It's not as, I don't know. So I imagine right. that was incredible. Oh, absolutely. It's like I always think, you know, you can have the worst. You can make a terrible cup of tea in the most dirty cup out there, but when you're out there and you've done a hard day's walking, it feels, tastes like the best cup of tea you've ever had. Um, and everything is like that. You, you know, you appreciate, you appreciate that much more because you, because you work for it. it you know, I, I, there's, there's some recipes I've come up with out there that, uh, that I love. And then I get back home and try it. And I'm like, how in the world did I ever think this tastes good? <laughs> I think this is good. Uh, I absolutely know what you mean. <laughs> so speaking of that, what what are you carrying for food and, and how often, you know, you're only going through, you know, towns of 800 at the most. Where are yeah. you getting your food? How often and, and what is it? Well, it was a big logistical um, sort of well, yeah, I had to do a lot of organizing beforehand. So, so I carry about a, a month's worth of food um, on one of my camels, and uh, I had to. I basically organized about five months worth of food before I set off out there. So, so bef- I I trucked the camels. Uh, I actually bought bought a camel truck, loaded the camels on at uh, Uluru in the centre of Australia and and drove to the coast of um, Western Australia with the camels on board and I had all my food boxes packed up in the truck and as we went along I actually I managed to drop them at a few places. There was a couple that sort of had to, you know, one that went out to a more remote area in the desert. Uh, you, everyone's, everyone's so helpful in the outback. Um yeah, everyone is willing to pitch in and help. So, so one of those food boxes, it got run out by the guy who tops up the fuel out at that uh, one remote uh, uh, roadhouse in the middle of the desert. He took my food boxes out there on a fuel run. Uh, so they sat out there for several months before I'd even before I'd even got to them. So, yeah, so most of the stuff obviously is long life. Um, I tried to stick away from cans. I mean, you can eat a little bit better I think than you know if you're going on a hiking uh, trip because you can carry a bit more weight since you're not carrying it on your own back but yeah I try and stick away from cans because you know that does make it heavy for the camels so a lot of lot of rice a lot of lentils a lot of you know stodgy things pastas um, I actually did what the old explorers used to do I I salted some some beef so you basically get a a big hunk of meat and you just pour salt all over it and then you just dry it out that way 
Um, took me a while to work out how to cook that uh, the best way because it doesn't seem to not matter how many times you wash it, it's still insanely salty. But uh, but that's what the old explorers used to survive off in Australia. They would pretty much eat um, salt beef, damper, and tea. Um, damper being sort of a type of bread that we do here just on the fire. So no wonder they ended up with scurvy. I don't think I was, yeah, I was eating, <laughs> I was eating a little bit better than that. <laughs> but, uh, oh, I was uh, craving just, just fresh food and salad by the end. Golly. So, so are, are you, you're mostly, you're not riding these, are you? Or are you sometimes riding the camels? Um, no, I ended up walking the whole way. Um, my lead camel, Jude, he's, he, I trained him to ride and, um, look, we're, we're pretty good at it. We're, it was one of the last things that I trained him to do. So our ability to go in a straight line is great. Our ability to, to turn left and right, not so good. Um, but I, in the end, I sort of, I decided to, I decided to walk mainly because uh, partly to make it easier, easier on him. Um, it's not like you're walking very fast, so it's not particularly strenuous walking. Uh, it meant that he could carry more pack bags if I wasn't riding. Um, and also partly a safety thing. Um, you know, like you were saying, it's it's having five large animals and it's not, you're not just riding one animal, you're really riding five, you know, you've got the others in tow. Um, so I had, a, I had a pretty scary experience actually where my camels took off on me early on in the trip so uh so after that I you know and I wasn't I wasn't riding then thank god but I remember thinking yeah it probably would have been a whole lot worse if I was riding um yeah so they just took off running yeah so um you don't have to tell the story if you don't want to Oh no 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 no! I'm, I I can tell it. It was a good it was a good le- um, learning curve, that's for sure. Um, I was we'd actually it was it was sort of before we'd got to the desert stretches. So we were we were on station country, and when I say station country, I mean like farms. But but um, stations in Australia are huge, huge, vast areas. Basically, um, you might as well be in the middle of nowhere. And um, I'd actually that day, I wasn't even following a dirt track or anything. I'd gone cross country because I, I'd gone 5K in the wrong direction the beginning of that morning. And I thought, oh, okay, right, that's annoying, but oh, well, I'll, I'll cut cross country. Um, we'll be right. So I was leading, leading the five along and uh, totally, totally oblivious. I think I was probably singing along at the time you know, enjoying the, enjoying the morning. And, uh, then all of a sudden out of nowhere, Jude saw a dark shape in the bushes. It was actually just a, it was just a cow (laughs) of all things. Um, so nothing scary, but for some, for some reason he just totally freaked. So I was holding onto the rope, his rope at the time he pulled away from me, it pulled me flat on my face and they're all, you know, roped to one another. So he, he shied and pulled off and it toppled all of the other camels over. So my camel Mac went down with all the jerry cans on him. Things started to fall off. Um, and, you know, my bedding, uh, what, what we call a swag, um, which is kind of like a bedroll, was hanging half the, uh, half the way off Jude. And then they sort of all recovered themselves, got up, and then just took off. And I always... I never, I always try and not run after my camels because, you know, it's only going to spook them more if you're sort of, you know, crazy human running after them. But 
you know, there was nothing I could do. I had to run after them. There was, you know, I had, I had to go catch them. So I was running and in the middle of, in the middle of nowhere. And as I started to run, I've realized I don't have my, I'd been using my phone to navigate. Um, that had been, that had fallen out of my hand when the rope was pulled out of my hand. Um, so as I started to run, I realized I didn't have any navigation on me. I didn't have my EPIRB on me. I didn't have my sat phone on me. I didn't have any water on me. Everything was packed in the saddlebags and they're all taking off into the distance with all of my safety equipment on their backs. Uh, and I, so I'm running after them. I started to lose sight of them at one point. I had to keep stopping and listening to the sound of the jerry cans flapping about on the back camel because they're all sort of spooking one another as, you know, you know, the lead camel, he hears the sound of the back camel with all the gear thumping around and then that spooks them more and he runs more and then they're all running more and, um, you know, they get into that herd mentality. And, yeah, it's just a vicious cycle, exactly. And I caught up to them at one point and all I had on me was my little pocket knife and so I I got my pocket knife out and I thought I'll I'll cut the last two camels off because at least then I'll have some of them and then the others might stop. And as I sort of reached out with that knife, they took off again and um, Clayton bowled me over and I was on my face again and then I'm running after them again and um, became totally disorientated, realised I had no idea where I was because you just, you're focused on them and, you you know, it, all the bush can look the, exactly the same. And thank God I managed to, the only reason I actually caught up with them was because Jude spun around a bush and um, he sort of spiralled in and, um, they stood the string spiraled in on itself so he couldn't escape because of because of the other camels and so I, I managed to catch up to him grab the rope and oh my gosh it was yeah it was one of the most scary experiences of my life um, you know I suddenly I just realized just that if I you know what would have happened if I hadn't caught them and I was just in so, such a frenzy when I when I got to them um, and it was funny, actually, I, um, I remembered do, uh, reading this, this survivalist book and they say, you know, when you, I think it was obviously an Australian one because they said when you're, when you're lost in the bush, one of the first things you should do is boil the billy. So a billy is like, you know, a teapot basically. And so it was saying, you know, like you'll never make a good rational decision for your safety when you're in a, when you're in a state of fear and panic. So boil the billy, have a cup of tea, mm. and just take stock. So I actually did that. So I so I tied Jude to a tree, and I was in tears, you know, I was in hysterics and stuff, and I thought, I'm just going to make a cup of tea. And <laughs> it was probably the best thing I did uh, because it meant I had to calm down. And and then, it yeah, it took sort of once I'd, once I'd done that and sort of regained a bit of composure, it took over an hour. I had to retrace their, their footprints. And it took us over an hour to get back to where it had all happened and, and all the gear had started falling off so I could recover my phone and everything. So, yeah, so big, big learning curve. I, after that, I changed a lot of things. I always made sure I carried water on me. I had always my sat phone on me, my EPIRB on me, just in case that was to ever happen again. So, <laughs> was, was there any lesson you learned in that about de- dealing with? those kinds of situations or dealing with just chaos? Yeah, I, I think even from even from um, working with camels, not even necessarily that particular situation, I've kind of developed a bit of a mentality of um, 
when things go wrong, do nothing <laughs> or, or like, you know, kind of like don't panic. Um, like I said, like the camels pick up a lot of on your energy. That particular situation, yeah, I guess my main my main things that I learned was I needed to have all of that safety equipment on me just in case that was to ever happen again. Um, it's so easy to become complacent, you know, especially with the animals because, you know, you're like, oh, they're doing really well and everyone's really chilled and um, and all, you know, can take one tiny little thing and it'll be on the day that you least expect it. You think that they're so super relaxed and then some tiny sound, some thing in the bushes will scare them and, and you're, you're with a fight or flight or you're with a flight animal. So they just have that herd instinct and they just, they just want to run from a predator. And uh, so, yeah, so that was the main thing I learned from that one. But, but in general, working with camels, I've, I, I really struggled on my trip because my camels were all new. And so they did used to, they used to spook at this, that, and everything else, you know, a water tank, a, a 44 gallon drum in the bushes, a, you know, some little pile of rubbish or something like that. It was like the scariest thing in the world. And they, and you're walking along and you have all of, your five camels like sort of running up behind you uh and you feel at first when you're training them you you feel like they're just going to run over the top of you and then you sort of start to realize that they won't do that uh so so I developed this this ability to just be out of you know they would spook at something and they would run up from behind or you know buck and things would flap all over the place and I would just literally not even turn my head to look at them I would just keep walking and I would just totally ignore that behavior and and I found, yeah, I found with them, like, there's just no point in in panicking. You have to sort of breathe and take it back down to basics. You know, no one's injured. You know, no one's dying. We're all okay. You know, you just keep moving forward. Mm, some life lessons right there. Mm. Life lessons. <laughs> keep moving forward. Grin and bear it and just That's don't right. panic. Don't panic. I'm sure. Don't panic. I'm sure that kept a lot of things from from going wrong later on. Um, you know, speaking of this, speaking of, you know, safety and being spooked and uh all that, what how is it traveling, you know, as the only human of the pack, but also in, you know, coupling with that, how, what has the interactions been with with other humans and uh and locals? How 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 have those gone? actually amazing so so amazing i've i've met just the absolute best people out there i um i haven't had a single station um say no i can't walk across their land everyone has said yes straight away everyone's you know because i've i contacted all of these all of these farms before i left and to ask permission to walk across their land and you know to ask them whereabouts the water points were and so on and all of them have been above and beyond helpful you know they were all like you can come and stay if you need a shower or you know if you want to put your camels in the in our cattle yards for a night um so yes i had some amazing interactions with with station owners um and uh aboriginal communities out in the desert i had a lovely community oak valley community that they actually there was a stretch that i just would not have been able to make it without um someone dropping water to me um, it was something like uh, over, set, you know, close to 700 kilometres without any water. And um, 
and I just thought it was it was too much to push my camels to do. And so they had agreed to bring water out to me, and their community wasn't even anywhere nearby. Like it was a it was a two hour two hour drive for them to get to me. So a four hour round trip on rough rough roads, towing towing a trailer with a thousand liters of water. Uh, so they were they were incredible, and they ended up doing not just one water drop; they ended up doing four water drops for me. And um, and it was just lovely too. It was lovely to be surrounded by these communities out in the desert as well. They have a really strong sense of culture. They English is not their first language, so they're all speaking in um, um, well, Pijandara is what they speak out there. And and so so it's sort of almost strange because it's like you feel like you've sort of landed in a different country and then you realise that actually this is the language of this land. Um, and they have, yeah, very a very strong connection to, to that land. And, yeah, so I had a, a beautiful experience with them. The ladies were all super lovely. They, they, uh, they really, uh, so it's a, it's a group called the, the Anangu people and they really, really take it personally if they feel like when you're walking across their land, they're sort of, they're, because they're the custodians of that land, your safety is their responsibility. So they really, really take it personally if if something was to happen to you. So they said to me, they said, please just call us on the sat phone um, if there's anything, if there's anything that you you feel worried about, you know, please safety first. We don't want anything to happen to you out there. Um, so so they were they were awesome. And the ladies actually brought me a whole, uh, they set up some tarps so I could have a shower out in the middle of the desert and they they brought up shampoos and conditioners and a whole little gift pack for me because I'd been sort of three months on the road basically at that point without a shower. <laughs> so, uh, so that was awesome. And, uh, and then actually, uh, well, after the camels had taken off on me, I, I met um, uh, someone who was so very helpful for me before I uh, hit the desert. I ended up staying at a station and there was a guy caretaking the station and he was ex-military. He was actually an ex-sniper and um, he helped me because I knew I was heading into the desert and because, like I said, there's a lot of wild camels out there, I actually had to carry guns on my trip because it can be a real problem with um, feral bull camels uh, are in season and they will come in and they will either try and mate or fight with your camels. And that can be a big, big problem because my camels are all loaded up with gear and they're restrained, you know, they've got ropes on and uh, these bulls can be really, really aggressive, big, big teeth on them. Um, they can do a lot of damage uh, fighting. And so, so yeah, so I had to carry, I had to carry rifles on me to, to shoot them if I had to. And I felt before going into this desert stretch, I felt totally unprepared. I, you know, I, I don't think I even had the rifle sighted properly. I didn't really know what I was doing. And so I stopped at this station and this guy basically just taught me everything from the ground up. He helped me sight the rifles. He took me out shooting. He taught me about breathing. He taught me about, you know, where to shoot the camel and, and how to deal with it and how to check if they were dead. Um, and then not only that, he went through all of my pack gear because army people are so, you know, they've had to march with 40K packs on their backs. They sort of, they know all about placement of, uh, of of gear and, you know, how to make things easily accessible, how to balance loads and that kind of stuff. So he basically did all of that with my camels and rearranged all the equipment on them. So after staying with him, I just went into the desert feeling so much more prepared. 
so it seems like the kind of the, the the common theme we hear on this show is that that most people are good. It has also been true for your adventure. Absolutely, yeah. There, there's seriously not been a, a single time that I felt unsafe with you know any humanity out there um there's been no one that's been weird creepy or or anything everyone has just been above and beyond helpful um you know yeah you you think you're not going to see anyone in weeks and then all of a sudden it's crazy you know in these most remote areas someone sort of pops out doing i don't know a motorbike trip or you know something and then all of a sudden you've got you know a bunch of people offering you a beer around the campfire it's like oh i wasn't expecting wasn't expecting this um but it's nice I love those kinds of interactions it's it's really nice um to have that and yeah yeah gosh everyone has been so so helpful to me that's wonderful that's so cool so so tell us a little bit about the second half of the trip you're you're about halfway are you coming from Cooper Petty right now um I will uh I will head back to Cooper Petty okay I thought I was saying that wrong um Cooper Pedy. Um it's it's a it's a funny old place, Cooper Pedy. It's like a, a a moonscape there. Very, very bizarre opal mining. Um but yeah, anyway, so I my camels are they're on a summer break at the moment, so they're they're stuffing their little faces right now, trying to get them nice and fat for uh for next season. Uh yeah, so I I'll head back and I'll pick them up, which might might entail sort of maybe one to two weeks of looking for them because they're on a huge area. They're about 900 square kilometres of, of area to roam. Oh, my uh, God. So, so it's almost like I've let them go back into the wild. So I, I'm not sure how happy they're going to be when I when I have to, to wrangle them back in again, make them do more work. Um, but, yeah, so I'll go and pick them up probably around March um, and then I will, will drive them back up to Cooper Pedy and then we'll start from the same place that we finished off and we'll walk from Cooper Pedy to, um, to Byron Bay on the east coast of Australia. So how long are you thinking that's going to take you and, and what kind of differences are you looking forward to with this second half of the trip? Oh, um, I think it's probably going to take me maybe five six months um that's just total estimate I mean I it took me six and a bit months doing this first half um I I think probably because we've gotten the groove of it a little bit more we'll you know probably be able to do some more k's on this stretch so so yeah probably five six months um in some ways this is almost it's it's much less remote Oh, having said that, actually, the first half of it is going to be quite remote. Leaving Cooperpedi and basically Cooperpedi across most of that will be quite remote. But um, once I hit the east coast, then it then it becomes a lot more populated. And in some ways, that's really the hard part uh, is starting to take the camels into areas that are much more populated. I think by that point in time, we'll probably will have to take some roads. I don't think we can get away with dirt tracks the whole way. And, yeah, and then it becomes mountainous too. There's what we have, what's called the Great Dividing Range, which runs all down the east coast of Australia. So I've got to get them across that, which um, I really need to go and uh, have a bit of a, a recce of that area and try and find a way to get them get them through that and then find a way to get them onto, uh, yeah, a very popular holiday destination beach so so yeah so it requires a bit more logistics i think this this um half of the trip 
I'm all I already sort of I don't know I'm wishing that it was like the first half in the sense that you know although it's it's tough traveling through deserts and very remote in some ways with camels it's it's almost easier and uh and I love I love that isolation I love that remoteness so yeah it, it will be interesting it'll be very very different this second half so interesting I'm so excited for you and and you know we're going to be you know, posting this before you get started, but it's something that folks are going to be able to follow along for five or six months because you do you do post about it, you do share about it, and you post incredible pictures. So it's going to be something we're going to have to talk to you about how how the second half went once you completed <laughs> it, and was it uh was it what you expected? Because I'm with this, you know, you can look at maps all day, but the reality of being out there is usually just so so different, you know. Yeah, yeah, no, that'd be great to chat to you about the second half. Yeah. Well, great. Well, where can we, uh, where can we point folks to uh, to follow you? I'm gonna plug everything, all your social, your website, but uh, you can go ahead and. Oh, okay. Um, probably what I'm I'm most active, I guess, on on Instagram when I'm not in the remote areas of the desert. I'm now at the moment. Uh, I'm currently yeah posting some photos from really a couple of months back that uh, obviously I wasn't able to post because there's no reception out there. Um, so so my Instagram is is Sophie Matteson one word. Um, Matteson is M A T T E R S O N. Um, so Sophie Matteson Instagram. I'm on Facebook as Coast to Coast Camel Trek. Um, and I do every now and then I'm trying to do a bit more of it, do a blog on my website, which is www.sophiemadison.com. Uh, yeah, that's me. Well, Sophie, that's, uh, <laughs> appreciate you being on the adventure sports podcast and, uh, w- what an incredible adventure. I'm, 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 I'm inspired to think outside the box about my next adventure. What, what can I do? <laughs> I've got two dogs. They're pretty much useless. I got to find another animal or something to take. <laughs> they could carry some pack bags, right? No, no, they are not. They are not going to do that. They're they're only good. The only thing they're good for is to love. So uh, that's about all I can do with them. Yeah, it does make it interesting traveling with animals. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sophie, have a great day, and uh, I'll let you know when this comes out. And thanks again for uh, for being on. Thanks, Mason. Thanks for having me. You have a great day too. You too. All right. See you. Bye. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash Podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.